Welcome to the Wellsteading Podcast. This is episode 413. Today is May 11th, 2023. I'm your host, John Pugliano. I'm also the founder and money manager at investablewealth.com. In this episode, I want to address a listener question that's been coming in quite a bit lately. And the question is, why do I have the bulk of my money in money market funds instead of something like a CD or a U.S. Treasury? Because in a lot of cases, because of the inverted yield curve, these CDs or Treasuries are paying better yields than a money market fund. Okay, the short answer to that is the reason that I'm in money market funds is not for the gain. I'm not investing in money market funds. I'm simply parking my money in a money market fund to protect the principal. My concern is that the market still has farther to drop. And so rather than take the risk of being invested in the market, I've simply pulled my money out of the system and I'm in money market funds not to get a gain, not to invest, but for a short period of time to park the money there and have it ready and able to quickly be deployed back into the stock market. Because I believe that the real long-term investment opportunity is in the stock market, and it's not in things like bonds or CDs. Just as a side note on that, the only time, let me preface this, in my opinion, the only time that you can really make any money in a debt instrument, and this is whether we're talking about a government-issued bond or a you know municipal bond or a corporate bond, I believe, from a historical basis, the only time that you can really make money on those type of instruments is when you're in a declining interest rate environment. And we've seen quite a bit of that over the previous you know 40 years or so. But I think that era has ended. That's not to say that interest rates won't drop over the next you know, coming weeks or months or years if we go into a recession. But what it does say is that even if interest rates do drop, I mean, look at where we're at with the 10-year treasury. It's not even at 3.5%. So if it goes to zero, you're only talking about a difference of 3.5%. Compare that to you know, the 1980s, where maybe the prevailing interest rate was 16.5%. And over the course of the next few years, it dropped down to under 10%. That's a much larger nominal difference, and it makes a big deal if you remember that the principal value of a bond is the inverse of the interest rate. I'm not going to go into all that right now because I know people's eyes are already rolling back in their head. But the point I'm trying to make here is that I don't view debt instruments, things like bonds or CDs, as investments. That's why you see me primarily investing in things like the stock market. I want to hold equities. Now, I know not everybody agrees with that, and you can make plenty of money investing in real estate or in other things, but those, again, those are ownership and a value, some type of a property or a company, as opposed to just buying debt. The reason I'm opposed to debt is also the reason that I really don't worry about things like Social Security going bankrupt or all the concerns people seem to have about the debt ceiling or the national debt or the concerns that the government or the Federal Reserve are going to go bankrupt. I don't think any of those things are going to happen simply for the reason of the alchemy that our financial system is all based on, which is that the debt never really ever gets paid back. And when it does, it's paid back with a currency that has less value. 
That's how they're able to keep kicking the can down the road. And it's not just our country. Look at the public and private debt in countries like China, like Japan. Japan specifically is in an amazing position right now. More than half of the government debt in Japan is owned by the Bank of Japan. What that means is that someday that will all be forgiven and it won't involve a default because the debt that's owned by the Bank of Japan, it was all created out of yen that was printed out of thin air. Hard to wrap your mind around this, but I'm going to make this prediction even though I can't predict the future. Someday, and probably someday in the not-too-distant future, you will see the country of Japan cutting their debt in more than half simply because the Bank of Japan forgives the debt. And it won't be bad for the Japanese economy. It won't be bad for future generations. It won't be bad for the currency of Japan. It'll all actually be good for them because the debt will go away, or at least half the debt. And no one will be hurt other than the Central Bank of Japan. But it doesn't matter because that money never existed. The Central Bank of Japan, just like a counterfeiter, printed it out of thin air. Oh, I'm digressing, and I don't want to argue the point of monetary policy, but the system works simply because the system works. So we'll just have to bide our time and see who's right and who's wrong. But let's get back to debt. Long term, I don't want to own government bonds or municipal bonds or corporate bonds because the way the system is set up, it's set up to pay me back with money that's worth less in the future. Not worthless as in it doesn't have any value, but it's just worth less tomorrow than it is today. And again, this is the way this system works. If you just look uh, earlier this week, Apple, the company Apple, they issued something like over $5 billion of debt. Now, they're sitting on something like over $50 billion in cash. In terms of size, whether you look at them from a U.S. perspective or a global perspective, Apple is one of the most successful companies, one of the largest companies, one of the companies with the most cash flow and you know great amount of money on their balance sheet. They don't need to borrow $5 billion. So why did they issue $5 billion in bonds when they could just pull it out of their own money or pay it off with cash flow over the next few months? They did it because it makes sense for Apple. They know that with the $5 billion they pull in now, they'll be able to reinvest it or buy something with it. And then over the next 10 years, they'll pay that money back with money that is less valuable to them. That's the way the governments do it. That's the way the municipalities do it. That's the way the corporations do it. It's just the way the system works. The debt payment structure is in the favor of the institution issuing the debt, not of the investor buying the debt. Okay, staying on topic here. The reason I prefer money market funds, again, is not to invest my money, but to simply park it somewhere where it's, quote, safe, and I don't have to worry about losing the principal. I want to preserve the principal today, so that tomorrow or the next day or in three weeks or in four months, I'll be able in an instant to take that money and drop it back into the stock market. In a second here, I'm going to give you some examples of why it's so important to have that money available instantaneously. 
And for the most part, if you're investing in a CD or a treasury, even if it's short term, your money isn't instantly available, particularly with a CD. You know, the CDs that I'm familiar with, and we're talking about certificate of deposits from a bank, they don't trade on a secondary market. So if you buy a three-month CD, you have to wait a full three months to get your money back. Now, with a government treasury, you can potentially sell that on a secondary market. You wouldn't have to wait that amount of time. But it does involve a lag, and it depends how you're trying to deploy that money. But the way I look at it is, is for that extra little 25 basis points or 75 basis points that you're going to receive by tying your money up for three months or six months or 12 or 18 months, I think it's just, you know, like picking up pennies on the railroad track. It's not worth the effort to just try and squeeze out that extra little amount when the real money will be made in the stock market once we move into the next rally. Let me digress here for a second. Uh, No surprise there. I've heard from a lot of people that when I kind of give that explanation to them, and this is really people that are fairly new to investing, I guess, they don't understand that when they get a three-month CD and it's supposedly paying 5% interest, a lot of people think that means they're receiving 5% every three months so that over the period of a year, they would be receiving 20% on their money. That's not how these instruments work. It's like your mortgage. The interest rate that's quoted to you is annualized. So a three-month CD that's paying 5% is not paying you 5% over three months. It's paying you something like, you know, a percent a quarter over those three months for an annualized rate of 5%. I know that's really simple and elementary, but you'd be surprised the number of people that don't understand that, even when it comes to their mortgage. In any case, at the risk of being redundant, I don't view buying debt instruments as investing unless interest rates are coming down. So I want to have my money 100% liquid and safe so that in a fraction of a second, I can move that money out of a money market fund and right away jump into the stock market and buy stocks. Now, why is that important? Well, remember the difference between tying your money up in a CD or a three or a six or a 12-month government treasury, that little extra incremental percent of interest that you're going to receive, that difference can be made up within you know, a 20-minute move within the stock market. Let's look at the S&P 500 and its volatility this year. Okay, Just from January 1st of 2023, on any given day, the intraday variance I'm talking about from the low of the day to the high of the day. Okay, in any given day, just this year, the market has varied on average 1.3% from low to high every day this year. And so when you lock your money up in that CD because you can get that extra, you know, fraction of a percent, you're really just talking about the variance months worth of interest in one given day in the stock market. Now, I'm not encouraging you to go out and be a day trader and try and accurately predict the low and the high so that you can squeeze that 1.3% out of every daily trade. I'm just pointing out that the variance is so great in the market that, again, for me and my money, it doesn't make sense to try and pick that penny up on the CD or the Treasury railroad track where once I go into the stock market, I can incrementally pick up months worth of interest payments just in one day. Now, you're probably saying, ah, John, that's not fair because you're talking 
peak to trough difference on a daily basis, what about just daily variance? Well, again, this year, looking at the close from one day to the next, the market's varying at about 10 basis points. And incidentally, that's a positive 10 basis points. But let's step back here a minute, too, and remember that I'm not so much worried about what's happening this year or these current market conditions in terms of the daily volatility of the market. Remember, I'm not in the market for the most part. 90% of my money is sitting safely in a money market fund. I'm not participating in that daily opportunity of maybe as much as 10 basis points. I'm not doing that because I'm worried that the downside risk is much greater than the upside reward. And to kind of illustrate that to you, let's not look at this year, but let's step back about 15 or 16 years ago or so and look at what happened during the 2008 financial crisis. I said that in this year's market, on a daily basis from low to high, the daily intraday variance of the S&P 500 was about 1.3%. Well, if you go back to 2008, for that trading year from January to December 2008, the intraday variance was over 2.9%, so almost 3% variance on any given day. Remember, today the 10-year treasury is paying 3.5% interest for an entire year. Right? That's, that's the yield of the 10-year treasury, 3.5%. In 2008, an extremely turbulent market, which we could be headed into, in that case, the variance intraday was almost 3%. That's almost the same kind of a yield that the 10-year treasury is paying today. And again, my emphasis here is not to encourage you to go in a day trade, but to simply understand how much markets can fluctuate in the just period of a daily trade. During that same time period in 2008, the difference on average from the close of one day to the close of the next was about negative 16 basis points. That means that every day you were in the market in 2008, on average, you lost 0.0016% of your money. And so over the period of those 12 months, had you sat through that, you would have lost almost 40% of your money. And the market hadn't even hit a bottom yet at that point. So again, this is an argument that I would make about why I am not a firm believer in just buy and hold strategies. I think if you think that there's a train wreck about to happen, you should get far away from the railroad tracks. Which again is why right now, with my concerns about limited upside to the stock market, I am 90% in cash. I'm willing to risk the opportunity cost of an upward trending market because I think the downward risk potential is so much greater. Now, maybe not to the tune of a 40% drop over the next 12 months like we saw in 2008, but easily could be half that much, if not more. So that's my argument for taking a precautionary move to get out of the market. Now, what about wanting my money 100% liquid so I can quickly jump back in? Well, again, let's look at 2009. And I'm just picking calendar years here to make the math easier and to illustrate the point. The market didn't actually bottom in the financial crisis until March of 2009. So I'm going to include the bottom in this calculation I'm going to give you. But just, again, to illustrate a point, let's say that the first trading day in 2009, 
you bought into the S&P 500. And the point here is to also illustrate that you didn't have to perfectly pick the bottom because you're actually getting in ahead of the bottom. But had you done that, then over the period of the next 12 months, because the market on average was going up 10 basis points a day, which incidentally is what has done so far this year, that means that you would close out the year of 2009 over that 12-month period with a gain of just shy of 25%. That's pretty substantial. And that's far greater than any little fraction of a percent you're going to pick up by going in to a 3 or a 6 or a 12-month CD. And let's say that you waited until it was pretty darn sure the bottom was in. Let's say you didn't get into the market until January of 2010, really a whole two years into the financial crisis. Well, you certainly wouldn't have made as much as the ricochet off the bottom from 2009, but by being patient, keeping your powder dry, waiting until you thought the worst of it was over and getting in in January of 2010, over those next 12 months, just by buying into the S&P 500, you would have easily made over 13.5%. The point I want to make here and really reinforce is that the variance in the stock market can be played to your advantage if you're getting into it in a rising market. You know you are in a rising market when 70 or more percent of the stocks are consistently going up on a daily basis. You don't have to exactly time it, peak to trough. There's plenty of money to be made in the middle but you have to be in the game and willing to trade and not having your money tied up in something you can't get it out of. During the financial crisis from 2008 to 2009, there was a full month of trading during that 24-month period when the market on a daily basis from low to high moved by over 7%. More than a month's worth of trading over a 24-month period. In fact, there were five actual trading days, and these all took place in October and November of 2008 when the market fluctuated more than 11% on an intraday basis over those five trading sessions, and not all of them were down days. In fact, October 28th, the daily gain in the S&P 500 on that day, so if you had bought at you know the close on October 27th, by the close on October 28th, you'd have made over 11.5% just in one day. Same thing with a little earlier in the month. October 13th, the market on that day, not intraday, but the actual gain from the close from the previous day, was up over 14.5% on October 13th, 2008. So even during some of the most volatile, worst down days in the market, there are extreme up days. And you can even apply that and see that in the current market we're in right now. What is everybody so worried about? They're worried about the banking crisis. Well, when did the banks start to fail? March 10th of this year. Had you been invested in the S&P 500 from January 1st until March 9th, right, the day before the banking crisis really kicked into gear, your annual return for the year would only be about 3%, barely 3%. But had you bought the S&P 500 the day the bank started to fail, March 10th, then as of today, you'd be up over 5%. And just to parse through that data, if you look at the performance on a daily basis of the S&P 500 since the banking crisis, there have been eight days where the market closed up 
more than 1.3%. One day it was up almost 2% in one day. And that was within two weeks of the immediate aftermath of the big banking crisis. What I want to stress here is that I believe that the long-term opportunity is owning assets, and specifically my preference is to own assets in the S&P 500. And you don't have to get in at the bottom and out at the top if you generally follow the long-term trends. I believe you can be far more successful being in the stock market than just about anywhere else. And so as far as tomorrow or the next day or the next week, I have no idea where the stock market or where the S&P 500 will be. I'm going to remain 90% in cash for the time being. But once I think that we're moving to that next phase, the next upward trend in the market, then I'm going to probably jump in and jump in hard because that's where I believe the opportunity is. Well, hey, as always, I can't predict the future. I don't know if I'm right or wrong. Come on back for future episodes. Until then, as always, this is John Pagliano wishing you the very best returns.